In this special Everywoman Changemakers podcast episode, we're looking at the issue of male violence towards women and asking where and how change can and should happen and whether it's happening fast enough. Male violence and intimidation against women is a universal problem. It exists in every country in the world at all socioeconomic levels and within all ethnicities. It's a problem of abuse of power, of silenced voices and often of a lack of accountability. In the UK, misogyny is finally, however, set to be recognised as a hate crime, something that will pass into law this autumn. But it had taken years, if not decades, of campaigning to push it over the line. Why? And why are we still debating the question around whether male violence towards women is acceptable in any society, in any way? Is there really a lack of impetus to solve the problem structurally, and in many ways culturally? And if so, where do the answers lie? I asked Tabitha Morton, Deputy Leader of the Women's Equality Party and a gender violence specialist. I I do think there there is a moment and I think with all of these moments it's important to seize the turbulence that they create um, because we saw with Me Too there was a moment wasn't there a few years ago where there was an outpouring of accounts of people who've been harassed and, and much worse and yet very little change came from that. So what I'm really keen to see is that that all of those women who relive the trauma that they've gone through that we actually listen to those and make it a political priority. The the fact that, you know, still the announcements that are made by government, the announcements made by police, they're still about managing the situation. There's very little conversations about how we end it all together. And I think that's the switch that we have to make because, it, one, it shouldn't be on women's shoulders. You know, men are part of the problem. And it shouldn't be about just managing and limiting our lives. We should actually actively work to ending violence against women. I read a quote from Mandy Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party recently, where she said, um, we can't minimise harassment and ignore the genesis of the problem, which is women being given less power than men in society. In terms of this move to actually doing something, is the problem less power or is it less importance? And are the two the same thing? You know, how when, when this is affects half the population, can this be an issue of less importance? I think there's two things there. I think because it overwhelmingly affects women, um, it is seen as a women's issue. So, for example, when we see when we see a, a, a terror threat or a health threat like COVID, governments mobilise. They, they you know, everyone's at threat, everyone's at risk. So they mobilise. They put resources in. They put lots of you know the cleverest people in the land start working on it, and they end it or they resolve it or they limit the, the damage. This is too often seen as just a woman's problem. So it's seen as like we'll just manage it over here. But I, I also make a connection to the fact that we aren't equal. Um, you know, if you look at the pay gap, is is not is not shrinking. Um, we are not represented in government. We're not represented in law in education, uh, for a very early stage, uh, girls and boys are taught that these are sort of the gendered roles that you'll play. Um, you know, when kids go to school, they already know which toys they're supposed to play with, <laughs> which careers they're supposed to go for. And yes, women do break through some of that, but not in the same way, um, not not in the same numbers. So there's a... The, the violence that we're seeing is a cause and consequence of the inequality that we that we face. And we've got to address both because whilst women are economically um, unequal, that does limit. So if you're in a, an abusive relationship and you're financially insecure, you can't literally get away from, from the perpetrator. You're stuck there. So I think we have to, yes, it has to be a societal fix, but it also has to, we have to start unpa- unpacking the inequality that women face today. 
politically then, is it a chicken and egg thing? Do we need a culture to drive the sort of willingness and commitment for policy changes that really make a difference? Or is it a top down thing? Well, you know, what, what needs to happen now on a political level to really move the dial on the issue of male violence against women? It has to be a political priority, like if, if it was a health emergency. You know, we, we might all disagree how the, how the government has dealt with the COVID uh, pandemic, but you can't say they didn't commit resources to it and they didn't make it a focus. So that's what I want to see. I want to make every political party and those in government make it a political priority. And to make it, the important thing, though, is not to just keep t- talking about policing. So policing being and, and sentencing has been in the in the headlines. And we know that the justice system doesn't work for women, just certainly doesn't work for black and minoritized women. Um, uh, the case of Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry brings, brings to mind is just back in the news today. Um, they were two young women who were murdered in Wembley in North London uh, a year ago. And their families had to be the ones who found their bodies. The police didn't take seriously that they were missing. Um, and, and then when they were found, uh, two police officers were accused of taking selfies with the dead bodies. Now, the only difference between those two women and Sarah Everett was their race. Um, and so we've got to also... Uh, especially as white women, we've got to look at this and also understand that it is no good, you know, us getting our freedom unless all women are free as well. I love that Audrey Lord quote. Someone shackles may be different from mine, but I'm not free until all women are free. I'm badly quoting this, by the way. <laughs> but going back to your original question, it has to be political. It cannot just be um, policing. We need to have a real reform of the justice system. And the crucial thing the Women's Equality Party is saying is, invest in the brilliant services around the country that are working to end violence against women and girls. So these are community-based services, these are refuges that help women escape the violence and the abuse or recover from the attacks that they've had and they rebuild their lives because this is not the end of your life when something like this has happened. If you get the right support, then you can really, you and your kids and your your wider family can go on um, and, and live the life you really want to live. Do you think it would help to have more women in positions of power in government to drive this forward? Absolutely. Um, We have to have more women um, across all politics, across policing. But we have to have women who see that this is a problem that needs to end because we have a woman who's in charge of the Met Police at the moment. And she has not shown the leadership to actually root out sort of the racism and sexism in her own force. So it's about having women in that position, but that all men and women know that this is a problem that needs to be ended. Facing the uncomfortable reality that our society has normalised violence against women and girls, that domestic violence has to get really, really atrocious before it even hits the headlines. So ultimately then... What, what's the change that you would like to see and in, and in what time frame? What happens next in your ideal world? There's a, there's a couple of things that need to happen because I'm never one for a silver bullet because I think that's quite sort of like a knee-jerk reaction to these things. So the first, the really quick thing that I think we need to do is reform how we police this. So I think there needs to be a specialist police force across the United Kingdom that is trained to, to debunk the myth to believe women and to be closely working with specialist services to support women through the justice system. There's no point in pointing to longer sentences when only 2% of rape 
cases are actually convicted at the moment. So we've got to unpick that. So the justice system and the policing has to be a specialist force that really understands the problem. Just like we've done with terror. So in this country, we've got specialist police forces who understand about radicalization and how to prevent it, that we want that same model for here. The other thing is that we do not fund services in this country for specialist services. So we're looking at at least 10 years of defunding of, of specialist community services, rape crisis centres, domestic abuse centres, um, centres that support women who um, are migrant women who've got no recourse to public funds. So at the moment, about 60% of referrals through the domestic abuse helpline are, are turned away. There's no spaces for women across the country to flee. So we have to invest in services. This, the, the key part of these is they have to be services that are run by the women who understand the communities they're serving. So we can't have, for example, services run through the lens of one white heterosexual woman um, because we're not one homogenous group as women. You know, we are gay, we are black, we are migrant women, we are disabled women. And we all have different needs and requirements. And that's part of helping to break the cycle of violence we may have found ourselves in as well. So the services have to be led by the women who understand those very distinct requirements and needs. And also the, the, at national level, we have to make sure that the strategy that the government implements is about ending all violence. So there's a lot of focus at the moment on street violence. There's a lot of focus all the time on domestic violence. But we have to like join the dots and say we have to fund services. We have to have a strategy that focuses on ending all violence because we can't just end it in pockets. And then the final thing that um, is really, really important is we have to support perpetrators and have perpetrator programs to actually support men to break that cycle. But we have to educate our kids. So, you know, at the moment, um, we are in some schools starting to deliver sex and relationship education. That only started last year. That's the first time it was compulsory in the UK. And it's not all schools. Um, and we're still not teaching consent. So. Um, my view and the Women's Equality Party view is that RSE, or Relationship and Sex Education in Schools, should be treated as importantly as maths and English. It should be sort of a real base skill that we teach our, our kids. So we need experts in it to deliver the courses um, because it is unpicking all of that sort of that role that kids find themselves in, that this is how to be a boy and this is how to be a girl. And it's just so damaging. So, yes, reform the justice system, have specialist police forces, fund services led by women who really understand the communities they're serving, and then educate our kids. I think they're the sort of the, the pieces of the jigsaw that we have to put together. Almost one in three women aged 16 to 59 will experience domestic abuse in their lifetime. Across the UK, domestic violence spiked during lockdown with one call made to police every 30 seconds by a threatened woman in the first seven weeks. The right for a woman to feel safe in her own home is challenged every day by statistics like these, and they show that violence in the home is an ongoing and pervasive problem. Black communities have some of the highest rates of domestic violence toward women and some of the lowest levels of funding for support services. This highlights how crucial the issue of an intersectional approach to male violence against women is. Issues of racism, immigration status, age, cultural background and poverty create complex trauma and needs that will not be solved by a one-size-fits-all approach. 
It's an understanding that's still deeply lacking, says Ngozi Falani, founder of Sister Space, a community-based non-profit initiative created to bridge the gap in domestic abuse services for African heritage women and girls. We join them in their busy offices in Hackney, North East London, to ask about the specific challenges that black women and women of African heritage face when it comes to male violence against them. I mean, where do we start? Before we even look at that, we have to look at um, the surroundings that we're in. We have to look at the injustices that we're facing by mainstream before we even get to that. Because if it's not equal on the ground, if it's not equal in society, then how can we expect it to be equal anywhere else? So even before we get to that, we're looking at, don't forget, we are of the Windrush generation. We are subject to this um, sudden deportation acts. People being here for 50, 60 years and then suddenly finding out you got to go, you know, to a place that they don't know. Um, we don't receive the same reception when we go to the police, when we go to the hospitals, when we go to the housing, whenever. Um, so before we even get to the point where we talk about what our issues is, we have to negotiate a system that doesn't support us. And then we can start talking about what our issues are, all right? In order to help us, first have to see us. In order to help us, we first have to see us. The next thing you need to be able to do is to hear us. And there seems to be a, a massive problem with that. Um, so we're not taking it seriously. Um, we are trying to negotiate a system that doesn't reflect us tends to call us names like BAME and Afro-Caribbean and so on and so forth. These names are not helpful. They're actually designed to hold us back. So that means that anybody who's a white middle-class man, everybody else practically can fit in this BAME. Therefore, they're allowing other people to speak for us. Rose Lewis works with Sister Space as an independent domestic violence advisor. Uh, what needs to happen is uh, we need to be invited to to the table as they say they need to speak with us any of the you know all the grassroots organizations they need to say what is happening in your organization what do you do how do you go about doing it what input can you give us and that's one of the things that never happen they never speak to us they just talk about us it's really that quite simple but what we're doing is we're we're inviting ourselves now because for so long, so so many other organisations have been waiting to be invited and it's not happening. So first and foremost, they need to invite us, they need to speak with us, because obviously we've got those experiences, we are working with the women, they need to come and they need to listen to the women. You know, we need to also bring the women to them so that they can hear the women's experiences, and that is the first um, most important thing that needs to happen. I presume that also by, you know, not talking to you, they're all also not, no one is asking you what you need and that must then impact on things like funding mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and all of that. Talk to me a little bit about, about that. I mean, if somebody turned around to you and said, what do you need and let us fund it, how much of a difference would that make to the women that you see? We could do with it, for example, a lot more research. Um, we could do a lot more events with the women. We can see a lot more uh, women and children. Also, if we had the funding, funding is interesting 
um, because like everything else um, in mainstream, it's everything's about a one-size-fit-all. So the funding is, this is what we say, this is the categories that we give you, this is what you have to fill in, this is what you're expected to have. And the minute that you put something different in the funding, because we're very specialist and unique, so if we put something different in there, that we may get it or we may not get it. Nine times out of ten, you're not going to get it, but you've got to work ten times harder to um, to actually get that. And then you have to start justifying yourself as to why you're asking for certain things in funding. And because you're lumped under the BAME for funding, your needs becomes the BAME needs when, in fact, it's not all like that because you've got so many different cultural heritages under BAME. Um, and usually those those BAME groups who come under black have been funded for so long uh, with a with a particular style that we come along and we change that whole paradigm and, and we get it or you you know or you don't get it. It's getting a little bit better. It's getting a little bit better. Um, but like I said, we know what it's like to not have funding whatsoever, not even from our local borough. And we worked in there. They never had me, never, ever funded us, never gave us a penny for anything. And also we haven't even touched on racism. So talk to me a little bit about how that impacts your work. That is like one of the thorns in, um, in, domestic, in domestic abuse. Because a lot of... Um, a lot of women are even scared to talk about their racism because the first thing, if you say something, they, they're going to think, you know what, people are going to think that I'm racist for speaking my truth, for speaking my experiences. But it is a part of it. Even that aspect gets pushed to the side. All the experiences that the women tell us about racism is horrendous. Racism with the police, the, the whole institutional racism, as we know, and it does stop women from from reporting. Even in the, the Boag, the violence against women and girls sector, there's racism. Even in that, there is racism. And where's the proof? The women speak to the women. You look at the people's policies. And if you look at their policies and their procedures and the way that they work and the, even the idvas that they have, um, who have um, racist notions and stereotypes and it's it's just there all the time. It's a it's our everyday living experience. We can't turn it on and off. Um, oftentimes we're told that is not true. That is not so. So they minimise and make your experience unracist when you live with racism. A lot of the women, um, especially who are born here, and go through it and give their experience. People are quite surprised that they are going through racism within the domestic abuse sector. I wanted to talk to you about the, the community aspect of it. So obviously you you have, you know, the support for the women who are affected, but then also how much work needs to be done around changing attitudes to male violence within black and African heritage cultures and where does sister space fit in with that? The community outreach, we have um, we have dialogues, we have panels, we have um, meetings. So that's that's one thing where the men and the women talk. Um, we there are black men's group who also do their own thing and they talk to, to speak. They speak with men. 
uh, for men to address these issues. But one of the things in our community is that we we're not used to talking about it because we don't like to we don't like to put our business out in public. That's just part of our cultural heritage again because of the mistrust, injustice, etc., etc. But there is a big there is a, a big movement um, to address that because we cannot just keep going at the rate that we're going, seeing uh, the, the figures, how high those domestic abuse figures are in our community. There is the side of it where it's like, I want to, but I cannot. I want to report. I want to say things, but I can't because there will be a lot of backlash from the community. There'll be a lot of backlash from your family. There'll be a lot of backlash from whatever religion you're in. And so a lot of that often prevents women from from thing in it. There has been a lot of work in the community. Some of the church groups have started to even get involved about talking about it publicly. Yeah, a lot of work has been done on grassroots. We at Sister Space, we're always talking about it. You just can't get away from it. So <laughs> that is... Um, that's just one of the things, and we we do call out and you know kind of say to the men that that let's dialogue. Um, we was we were on one just I think it was last week. We was just on one where we dialogued, and it's about changing perceptions. It's about being truthful, and it's about being honest, um, and it's about continuing to have those dialogues. So grassroots is where the change is going to come. It's not going to come from from the people at the top who think they know things and they know nothing about us. So it's the, the, the grassroots dialogue is what's going to make things happen. What's clear is that for all the policy and the helplines and the amazing work that activists and grassroots support services are doing, any discussion around more women's safety is really missing the point if it puts the onus on women to protect themselves rather than men to stop being violent towards them. Getting men to participate in reworking this situation is crucial to ending it. One man who thinks so is Chris Green, founder of the White Ribbon UK campaign, part of a global movement of men and boys working to end male violence against women and girls. Charities focused on engaging with men and boys to make a stand against violence, with a mission for all men to fulfil the White Ribbon promise to never commit, excuse or remain silent about male violence against women. It works with supporters, ambassadors, organisations and policymakers to raise awareness, to educate and campaign to bring about change. I set it up because I'd been active in anti-sexist men's politics uh, years before. I was an academic and I had some spare time. I was looking for something to do. And I thought, oh, yeah, why not men's politics? And I thought about starting another magazine. There was something called Achilles Heel, which I'd been on the board of before, which was a magazine for changing men, it said. Um, but at its height, it had a circulation of about 2,000 to a bunch of people who all think the same way anyway. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make some cultural change. So I saw the work of White Ribbon Canada. and I thought, that looks pretty useful. They're getting out to lots and lots of people. And so I, I decided that's what I wanted to do. I had no idea about the extent of men's violences against women at the time. I just thought it, this was a good thing to be working in. It blew me away then and still continues to do now at the extent of the violences. 
and gradually, very gradually over the years, we got bigger and bigger. But still, if you go down the street on, for example, November the 25th, the UN Day to Eradicate Violence Against Women, which a number of local authorities now call White Ribbon Day, but if you go down any high street, 90 out of 100 people will say, I have no idea what White Ribbon stands for. And yet in Australia and New Zealand, they have 70% recognition rates. And that's what I'd be interested in. That is when we start to make a difference. Do you think that most men um, actually have no idea of the extent of violence against women uh, that is perpetrated by men? Do you think that's part of the problem? Because I can't think that any right-minded man would want to agree with violence, but it's almost agreement by omission, by not knowing. Yeah, and it's, it's a very useful omission, isn't it? If we don't know it about it, we don't have to do anything about it. Of course, the United Nations say it's the worst human rights violation in the world. Would you sign up for Amnesty International? Yes, of course I will. But if you ask them to sign up to a, a campaign challenging male violence, it's with, oh, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not violent, me. No, I, you know, and that sort of thing. Do men know about it? No, because they've never asked. On Friday last week, I addressed a bunch of uh, male teachers. And on Monday, I was teach talking to the male students and the deputy head said, oh, one of our staff, he was a bit, he was a bit cynical on Friday. But this morning he came in and he said, I talked about it and I think there is an issue and I want to get involved. And I thought, hallelujah, because if people, more people are having those sorts of conversations, more men will get involved. But it's a dead long journey because, I say, the, the sin of omission, we don't want to be involved. It's hard work. It takes, it takes effort upon yourself. I'm still working on myself 16 years later. Let's talk further about men's role in this sense. So obviously, you know, White Ribbon is unique in that it engages men to look at male violence and to, to challenge it. So how crucial is it for men and boys to individually and collectively take action uh, and change their behaviour to end violence against women and girls? And an adjunct to that, why do you think the onus has largely been on women to protect themselves rather than men to stop? Again, it's about entitlement. It's about, I don't have to do anything. Why should I do anything? I mean, you're not having to um, articulate that. It's just internalised. And so that's why it's been it's been women's problem for many, many, many years, which is also why over the years, more more all women's organisations have welcomed an involvement of men. Now, there's been some positive critique of our involvement and what we should do and how we should do it. And some of that has been incredibly useful. For example, Object said to us, hang on, you've got an accreditation for local authorities. Why don't you ask them to stop? licensing lap dancing clubs and we thought it was a brilliant idea so we wrote it into our accreditation agreements but it's absolutely vital for for men to be involved it's our responsibility because we commit 90 percent of interpersonal violence it's our responsibility because as i said women's organizations have kept saying men need to get their acts together and start being involved in this and as a result, you know, I've, I've worked with over 20 women's organisations over, over the years, you know, including addressing the um, people who run the phone lines at Women's Aid. And they said, oh, it's really nice to have you, that perspective that really informs our work now. 
Um, that's the second reason why men need to be involved. The third reason is some men will also pay attention if the message is also coming from their colleagues and their brothers and their relatives and their workmates and their their friends. And that's probably most important in terms of education anywhere, peer education. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, men, men, it could be argued, are the most impactful people to educate boys to become responsible, nonviolent men. And I mean, th- there must be something around the power of role models within this. I'm looking at my board in front of me and one of the postcards up there says, he learns respect from you. You know, and it's a picture of a father with a kid on his shoulders. And of course, we learn all our, we learn good behaviour and we learn bad behaviour uh, as you know, when we're four years old, five years old, six years old. Um, and that's what's so sad is that three quarters of a million children a year witness domestic abuse. Uh, so they're learning role models there. It carries on from one generation to another generation because it's just it's just been copied because that is the way some people think men and women relate. And so that is a really vital uh, thing to intervene with. Lots, lots of political endorsements as well, but I'd rather have the political work going on than just a, a politician wearing a ribbon for a week or a day or what have you, uh, because what you need is, is political action. And unfortunately, we haven't seen a lot of that. The Istanbul Convention, for example, six years on, they still haven't ratified it. Even when they signed it, they were one of the last major countries in Europe even to sign it when David Cameron signed it and that would make a huge difference uh, to our work as well as the provision of services and the um, protection of women by prosecuting offenders it would make loads of difference because it calls upon states to actively encourage the involvement of men in challenging violence against women and girls where we try and get men involved is through our accreditation program because there's only two people in the office at white ribbon and actually, how can you have any influence with two staff? So by accrediting organisations, you end up with one and a half million people who've at least got the message. And some of them choose to sign the pledge. Some of them choose to become ambassadors. And at least that organisation is pushing the message out. It's a requirement that they must do that if they want to keep their accreditation to their uh, staff and to all the people they represent. So if you get something pushed through your door uh, by the local authority, it might just say, uh, oh, yes, and don't forget, November the 25th is the International Day to Eradicate Violence Against Women and 16 Days of Activism Following, blah, 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 blah. And if you want to show them, why not wear a white ribbon, blah, blah, blah. One local authority, Blackpool, they got their local college involved, their local faith groups, uh, the local scouts, the, the lots and lots of other organisations, schools, the sorts of things that we couldn't do because we haven't got that many staff. But also then they put up a huge illuminated plaque on the, through, in the illuminations, which is seen by three and a half million people. Will it make any difference to people? It'll make a bit of difference to somebody somewhere. And that's all we're hoping for. Cultural change doesn't come in a flash. You know, it happens gradually, drip by drip by drip. And so that's the sort of influence we want to have. Have you, even as a progressive man, ever had any of your own assumptions or, or unconscious biases around gender highlighted to yourself? And, and if so, what were they? And how did you grow from that and understanding? All, all the time, but it always comes as a shock, as a realisation, um, and that you suddenly realise, either I didn't realise women had to do that, 
couple of days ago, I was doing an event for the Women's Institute um, online, and there was a great discussion um, of what steps those women have taken during their lives to remain safe from male violence. And a lot of the conversation was about behaviour in taxis and taking photographs of their taxi plate and some somebody else as well. I always phone all my all my friends when they got home, say, yes, we've all got home safe. OK, I got I sh- if, if I'm walking home late at night, I slow down, I cross the road if I'm walking behind someone so that I'm no longer walking behind them. That's the easy part. But it's all this other stuff that you have to take on board. But the telling thing was I was looking through some old diaries. It's a lockdown activity to try and write my memoirs. And I read um, something that I'd written which said, I decided that we should only write letters to each other three times a week. This is a man in a relationship with somebody in a different town, you know, and I just because it was getting in the way of our other sort of political activities, you know, it was, I think I decided. And you might say, oh, well, that's just 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 something you said. Yeah, but it is only things we say. Why on earth we have to teach consent education in universities and why only 70 percent of universities are carrying it out? You know, they're prepared to train you not to burn yourself to death in your flat, you know, or your your hall of residence, but they're not prepared to actually make mandatory uh, relationship and consent education. Uh, Somehow, but not all of them. And that's, of course, when you're 18, you know, so it's it's harder to help people change their behaviour when they're 18 than when they're four. And that's why I think perpetrator programmes are are very, very essential, but always hard work. Because, of course, perpetrator programs are about trying to get guys to stop being perpetrators. Well, it would be even better if they had never had those thoughts in the first place. So ultimately, would, would you say that to drive real change, men have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable uh, and looking this in, in the eye, basically? Do you think that there is that period of, um, of growth that needs to happen that will be uncomfortable but necessary? Absolutely uncomfortable when necessary, uh, and and I think we get we're going to be pushed into it by women who we know and, and love, saying, "Look, you ought to be doing this." That is going to be the biggest incentive. It's going to be the biggest reason why men want to change. I got my pro-feminist views because I was hanging around with feminist women when I was growing up, you know, and when I was at the university and stuff like this. And, and that's how you learn decent behaviours. Um, similarly, I think women will say, look, we want men to start taking us a, a, a part in this. And why don't you just start listening to women? That's the first part. Talking to other men and taking action about changing other men's behaviour. And if we all started to do that, wow, we would see a lot of change. It's a tiny, tiny fraction at the moment of pro-feminist men who are active um and so we've still we're still way down the line in terms of the behaviors that we have to encourage even from the men who've who've been a little bit interested we've had sixty thousand men sign our pledge but i saw something the other day somebody on on facebook saying well yeah but anybody who signed a pledge in fact it's just a a badge of honor you you know that's not about real change at all but my argument would be it's a baby step along the way. And I would then appeal to those or work with those 60,000 people to try and get them to do more online education, which there's plenty of it around, and then become an ambassador for White Ribbon. If 
one guy says something in a group, there's always a couple else who are, who are thinking they want to intervene um, to condemn somebody else's behaviour, but didn't didn't dare. And they will quickly come in and back you and say, yeah, I thought it was completely out of order, sort of catcalling that woman as well, but I didn't dare say anything. And, and that's when we start to change the sort of the group consensus. And that's when we'll have some successes and change. Policy, campaigning, role modelling and awareness. They're all powerful parts of the mosaic and the drive for change. But as individual women, can we also add our personal power to the tide? One woman who found a well of direct activism in her after the events of the past weeks is Jamie Klingler, who, along with a group of like-minded strangers, set up Reclaim These Streets, the Facebook event that coordinated the vigil on Clapham Common. They were then subsequently forced to cancel it by the police, putting the event in the eye of a media storm around COVID restrictions, the right to protest and the perceived priority of women's safety in public discourse. The group went on to raise half a million pounds from crowdsourced donations to give to women's charities. So what made her step into the flow and take such a public stand for an end to male violence against women? So the reason I decided to step up and get involved is basically when the Charlie Hebdo murders happened, I was at a magazine and we kind of all piled out of the building and went to Trafalgar Square and seeing other people that felt the way I felt at the impromptu vigil that happened that night really gave me quite a bit of comfort and strength. And because I live alone and I'm a woman living by myself, I just was bereft. But because of lockdown, I hadn't had any hugs and I I hadn't sat with any women that were feeling as punctured as I was or as unsettled as I was and as angry as I was. So I really felt the numbers and strength and and also the hearing that police were going around Clapham knocking on doors and telling women that the only way to keep themselves safe was to stay inside at night was so outrageous, especially as someone living alone. Like, am I supposed to stop getting avocados? Am I supposed to never have any men come and deliver food at my door? Am I not supposed to get deliveries just in case I didn't protect myself enough, which infuriated me. So I really felt like it was time to reclaim these streets and come outside and be seen in volume, to be heard in volume. And to really all of these events and every time you hear a horrible um, act of violence against women, it shatters your security and it shatters your ability to walk outside with confidence and to hold your head high. And each of those little chinks in your armor, because there's millions of them, they really, they, they knock away at the confidence to be outside, to function as an adult woman in society, and to, to walk without fear. How many nights have you hurried your step to be near a couple? Because at least if you're with a man that's with a woman, you're safer. Um, I definitely, if I'm coming off of a tube at night and I see a couple walking ahead of me and there's a man by themselves walking behind me, I definitely hurry up. You know, so there there is safety in numbers, but especially... Um, as a woman that lives by myself, I, I jog by myself. I, I go out by myself every single day. And I think it's about finding finding a safer point, but also teaching respect. Um, a lot of the conversations I've had over the last three weeks now is about guy friends asking, well, what can we do to make women not feel intimidated? And it's some of the first times I've heard my male friends ask, like, but I'm not a bad guy. How I'm not trying to scare somebody if I'm walking down the street. Should I cross the street? Should I do this? And the amount of brain space it takes for women 
to look at their surroundings and do the safety check and do that. Am I going to be okay? Men can take some of that on themselves and give us a little bit more space, give us a little bit more distance, walk slower. If you're in step with someone, just just stop and give it a minute, give them a little bit more comfort and give them a little bit more room. Yeah, I mean, it's the small changes that, that add up to big culture change in the end, uh, I feel. that. Um, it, it, but in terms of direct activism, I mean, you've obviously taken, you took a very direct response there. What what would you say to to somebody who wanted to get active in this space? You know, what what would you uh, recommend in terms of how people can make an impact and put their voice to demands for greater safety? Actually, this afternoon we're um, we're doing an afternoon session about about everyday women finding their voices and finding activism. Some of the issues I've had with things that I've been interested in signing up for in the past is none of it was using my applicable skills. So like me just picking up some trash on a beach isn't necessarily using my communications background or my event planning or things like that. So I'm very conscious of women like me that haven't ever stepped up the plate before. They might they might have written a donation check, but they haven't felt like they could actually do something. And I really want to help organize a core of volunteers that that will go and volunteer at rape crisis centers, volunteer at Samaritans on the phone volunteer in ways where they really feel like they are contributing their applicable skills. Um, and, and I'll be the first one to say, I don't really know exactly how that's all going to plan out. But in the next two weeks, we're going to do a call for volunteers. And we're going to work with Rosa, which is where we dedicated the um, £525,000 that was raised by, so, by 21,000 people. Um, and look at the grassroots charities and find out where people can actually volunteer and do the on the ground work. Um, what was so important for us was that a lot of those are small grassroots facilities and, and charities that will be getting the money. And so if we then open up the paths for women to be able to volunteer their time at those grassroots charities in their own communities, if they can work at food banks, if they can help in shelters for homeless women or refuges. Like, I think there's lots of ways, but they're not always easy to find. And I really want to help open up some of those routes so that people can put their money where their mouth is, but they can also feel that they're contributing members of society. What did you learn personally through the experience of engaging in this way? And, and, and what's the change that you want to see in the world eventually? I've learned so much personally in this experience. Um, I've learned so much from the women that have shared their stories of sexual assault and harassment. I've learned tons and tons from the women that I've worked with on Reclaim These Streets. And one of the more upsetting things I've learned is the value that is placed on a white woman's life as opposed to women of color. This morning, I listened to a, um, an interview with Mina Smallman, who is the mother of Biba and Nicole, who were um, murdered last year, and they weren't. She wasn't taken seriously. There wasn't a search. I didn't stand on the steps. I didn't. I didn't run a vigil. There wasn't the outrage that her daughters deserved, um, and her family went searching for their bodies, and and that's a really fair criticism, and it's a fair criticism of all of us, and a fair criticism of the media, because all women deserve to be safe. All women deserve to be valued. Um, and all women deserve to be protected from violence at the hands of men. The whole thing about 97% of women being harassed is the number cited now. And it's not 97% of women are harassed one time. 
were harassed thousands of times. And somebody was like, well, if you, if you give name to it each time, and I'm like, we'd be the most boring people ever. Cause it would be all we talked about. Like if, if everything was just about cataloging the number of times that we've been harassed or touched against our will or yelled at through the, from cars. Um, I think there are steps being made. We were thrilled. Um, when Boris announced that misogyny is finally going to be recognized as a hate crime, women have been asking for that and working for that for years. And I know that we come in at the at the twelfth hour, and and um, I took some credit for that, and I probably shouldn't have. Um, I know that I've worked really hard for the last two weeks, but I haven't worked for decades. And we stand on the shoulder of women who have organized and have given their lives to this type of activism. I'm new to the game. Um, I'm new to putting my voice out there and and hopefully inspiring women like me who haven't ever done it. Actually, if I then compel lots of other women who have never done it, we can be an army. You know, we can we can change we can change how police listen to us when we report harassment, when we report sexual assault. We we do have a lot of power, and I think that's been shown by the last two and a half weeks. Um, we raised five hundred and twenty six thousand pounds in two and a half days. I I didn't know that this was all going to happen. I literally thought we were going to put on a respectful vigil. And what happened was a tidal wave of grief from women, like a tidal wave of we've had enough. This has to stop. And I know that it's not all men, but it's certainly not a tiny percentage of men if it's 97% of women. So massive change needs to happen. And one of the things I also am so grateful for in terms of the platform we've been given is it really feels like it's gotten to people's dinner tables. I think in the last two weeks, people have talked to their sons about it. They've talked to their children about it. And I think that's where so much of this work is going to happen. We're talking about putting together some framework for um, different age groups in terms of consent and digital consent. Um, A lot of a lot of what I'm worried about and I hear about from teenage girls is that the pressure to send naked pictures of yourselves and then this that's out there and the power that has to silence kids. If you get silenced when you're 12 or 11 with a, a shot of your breast, it's very hard to ever get that confidence and voice back. And and I'm just refinding my own adult voice, you know, and just refinding my my source of power. And my source of power is getting messages out and helping to ring the bell. And and we're not going to be quiet. We um we sued the Met Police for our right our human right to protest and that's ongoing, you know? Like they tried to shut us up, they tried to shut us down and and it's not going to happen and and I'm not going anywhere and reclaim these streets isn't going anywhere. In the end the issue may be complex and the conversation's still ongoing. But there is one goal and it's clear and simple, safety and security for all women and a society in which men and women live together in mutual respect. It's not much to ask, arguably for my guests working tirelessly towards positive change and for women all around the world. It may be time to demand it. Every Woman is a global platform for women in business that drives positive change by empowering women to achieve their professional potential. Visit everywoman.com to discover how we're advancing women in business and inspiring a generation of future female leaders. For every woman, everywhere.